Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The tiny little prophetic book of Nahum is not for the faint-hearted. It is a gloomy, hard book. It is harsh. It uses disturbing imagery and language. Like the book of Obadiah, though, it has no chastisement for Israel, but it predicts the destruction and humiliation of Assyria. It really should evoke both hope and vigilance in us as we try to seek for how to what we can learn from it today. Nahum seems absolutely convinced that God allows and uses earthly powers, but in the end, God will not let any form of human pride or injustice stand without a proper accounting. You either repent and are forgiven, or you reap the consequences of your pride and injustice. Assyria was one of the world's first great empires with their capital at Nineveh, which we heard about before with um, uh, Jonah. They are violent and destructive on a scale that the world had just never seen prior to this. Um, the very first time we see a conflict is conflict is way back in First Kings, and then their fall is going to come at the hands of the Babylonians in 612 BC. The second chapter is going to depict the fall of Nineveh in some very vivid poetic language. Uh, in chapter three, we're going to then see the downfall of the entire empire. So we start with the city falling and then the entire empire. Chapter one is an incomplete alphabet poem. It starts um, kind of like the Micah ends with a powerful appearance of God's glory. And then that's also how Habakkuk ends. So God's glory is a recurring theme for these prophets. It's why they prophesy what they do. God, the Almighty Creator, comes to bring His justice on all the nations, not just his people, but God is creator of the whole world, and therefore the whole world is beholden to the standards that God creates. Um, the book opens by quoting God from earlier, um, what God has said just after the golden calf incident back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Um, the fate of violent, arrogant nations is contrasted with the fate of the faithful remnant of God's people. Nahum never mentions Assyria at all in chapter 1. Instead, he chooses to use language from Isaiah, um, as Isaiah describes the fall of Babylon. The fall of Nineveh and then of Assyria is presented as an example of how God is at work in every age. Justice and righteousness are part of who God is, and they absolutely eventually went out. And this is the standard to which God pulls the world in all ages. So in this way, the message of Nahum is also similar to the message of Daniel. 
Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, um, and Nineveh stands as a memorial to God's promises. Remember, at one point, Nineveh repented and escaped some of this judgment, um, but now they're going to get what they've, they have coming. Chapter two, we have stages of a battle here. So we have first the frontline troops are described, then the charge of the chariots, the chaos on the city wall as it is breached, and then the slaughter and plundering of the city itself. In chapter three, we get a great woe that is pronounced on them. Injustice is literally built in to their system. The system has made them successful as a conquering empire, but it is also the seeds of destruction. If you sow in violence, you reap in violence. Um, this chapter three concludes with a taunt of the fallen king um, who has a fatal wound as the whole world celebrates his destruction. It also here addresses the idea um, that there are cycles of violent oppressors who take what they want that results in human suffering and death of people who are innocent, who are caught in the middle of that. And the idea is that God cares about the death of innocent people, not just among his chosen people, but among all people, because remember, all people are created in the image of God. The good news, however, is that God's goodness compels God to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. Um, this is good news, unless you are the oppressor. Um, before we jump into the chapters particular, I want to say a word about the city called Capernaum. Jesus put his earthly headquarters in Capernaum while he was doing ministry here on the earth. And Capernaum means the city of Nahum. So it is the traditional city where the prophet Nahum lived on the coast of um, Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. Kephir, which uh, then became Kaper or Kapur, means city. And Nahum became Nahum. So we have Capernaum or Capernaum. Okay. All right. So this book was probably written in the seventh or eighth century BC, um, as the prophet, um, is actually writing from Jerusalem. Um, even though Capernaum would have been the area where he was from. Um, it was written after the Assyrian destruction of Thebes. Um, by the Egyptians in 663, which is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 3. Let's jump into each of these little chapters. In chapter 1, little is known about this prophet. Um, his name means comforter, and we're told that he's from the town of Elkosh or Alquash, um, just depending upon which manuscript they are translating. This is in the area of um, Galilee, so it is um, feasible that Capernaum was the city of Nahum. Chapter 1 is an acrostic poem that begins in verse 2 with the first letter of uh, the alphabet. There are 10 to 16 of the 22 letters that we can find. We lose all of this 
in the translation, but even the transmission of the original acrostic poem became corrupted um, as the book was um, passed along and copied. And this happened even before we ever translated it into another language. Verses 2 through 11 focus on the wrath of God. God, um, it speaks of God's character as in the days of Moses, um, going back to chapter 34 of Exodus in verses 6 and 7. Um, None is able to oppose God, the guilty receive justice, and the righteous receive refuge. In verse 4, Bashan and Carmel are mountains, and in the very next verse, they quelt, they quake and melt before God. Um, this is not unbridled anger or blind rage. This is justice. Um, it, the picture here is that a loving God cannot allow oppression and violence to prevail. A righteous God cannot let evil go unanswered. You either repent or you suffer the consequences. In verse 8, he puts an end to adversaries, an end of um, an end of her place, which is a way of saying the end of a nation that opposes God. Verses 12 through 15 then have some good news for the remnant of God's people, some good news for the remnant of Judah. Compare verse 15 to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, and Romans 10, 15, the feet of the messenger bringing good news. As we move into chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in the Hebrew text, um, the text that begins this section, okay, let me try that again because when I don't have my notes well in front of me so I can see, I, I stumble over my words. Moving into chapter 2, we have a section that began with the last verse of chapter 1, moving into a new portion. So we are looking to good news from the messenger. Verse 1, we see troops lined up against the city. Verses 2 through 4, we have that chariot charge we talked about. Verse 5, they breach the wall. Verses 6 through 12, they plunder the city, kill the people, and take many of them into exile. In verse 11, the lion that is mentioned here was a symbol of Nineveh or Assyria, kind of like our eagle or Statue of Liberty for the United States. We sometimes think about the lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah. A lot of countries liked to use the symbol of the lion because it's a pretty fierce animal. But at this point in time and history, the lion is a symbol of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Um, when it talks about a cave or pasture, that was where the lions lie in repose, where they rest without fear, or without danger. Verse 12 says that the lion, we know that the lioness's hunt and not the males. This here is a metaphor um, that the male lion is hunting. In verse 13, we have a pronouncement of judgment. The Babylonians or the Medes, um, in 612, come and destroy them. But the Lord of hosts is portrayed as the actual destroyer. It's just happening at the hands of someone else. Your chariots can also be translated her chariots. It's a reference to the cities and to countries as female, which is a very common way of doing things. Moving into chapter 3, Verse 4 talks about the debaucheries of the prostitute, the actions of Assyria 
or at least of the city of Nineveh. People are enticed into trade with them, um, and then they are taken by them. So economic and religious wrong, wrong that is happening here. Um, and it enslaves them, which is kind of the same thing as the selling happening there. In verse 5, it talks about the skirt being over the face. Um, this is much like a phrase we hear elsewhere in Scripture about uncovering nakedness. It would be humiliating. Um, we know that the Assyrians were known for raping the people that they conquered. They raped both the men and the women um, because it was humiliating. It was a way of subduing them through humiliating tactics. Um, and now verse 5 is asserting that they will now be on the receiving end. They will be the victim of such atrocities. They will be a spectacle, verse 6 says. And verse 8, we get the destruction of Thebes, Egypt. Um, Ethiopia is another name for Nubia or Cush. Verse 10 talks about um, killing children Killing the children would break the spirits of the mothers. They would be in such grief. They would not have the ability to fight back. Um, casting lots for the nobles is about enslavement as well as sexual humiliation. So they would take the well-to-do of the city. They would cast lots to see who get to humiliate them, which would have included um sexual humiliation and subduing. And then fetters is a reference to leg irons. The Assyrians were absolute masters of torture, and they bragged about it. Um, they were known for amputating portions of their conquered people's bodies, um, gouging out their eyes, and they, they preferred to leave them maimed, um, either without a foot or without hands or arms or eyes. Um, they preferred to leave them as a living testimony to the power of the Assyrians. They also really liked to use mass executions and impalements. Impalement would be um, inserting a stake under the ribs um, of the people from the back. So it goes in at an angle from the lower back up through the rib cage. Of the person. What we often see when impalement is depicted in pictures is of them going in from the bottom, like through the anus and then out the, the top. That was common in medieval times. That was not how the Assyrians did it. The way they did it, going in under the rib cage, made the death slower. Um, so they would go in. And a lot of times they went in under the rib cage from the front as well. Um, so they would go in like around the belly button and then come out the back between the shoulder blades without um, separating the spine because this made the torture worse because as the stake was planted in the ground, the body weight of the person who's been impaled would gradually pull them down the stake as they died. By the way, 2,000 years later, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Tepes, um, who is also known as Count Dracula, would look back to the torture methods of the Assyrian people, including the impalement, as something he would copy in his use against the Ottomans. They also liked to flay 
um, rebel leaders, they would um, start at the buttocks and thighs and pull skin off and um, like to take all the skin off the lower legs. They would cut the the skin into strips and then pull it off. And then they would um, hang both the strips of skin and the people on the city walls and um, sometimes leave the the flayed person as a, a living victim walking around, you would eventually get disease and, and you would die. They often forced rulers of conquered peoples to dig up or open the tombs of their ancestors and then crush the bones. They would also then take that crushed bones and put it into the food and drink of the people and force them to um, consume the bones of their ancestors. It was a form of psychological torture. Plus, it also played into those um, conquered peoples whose belief system was that their ancestors would be resurrected or that their bodies needed to be buried intact in order for them to survive in the afterlife. Um, they also liked decapitation and they would build pyramids out of the heads. Um, they would decorate um, the the pyramids much in the way that we might decorate with Christmas ornaments on a tree. Uh, they were just really masters of incredible torture, and it scared people um, so that nobody wanted to. Everybody wanted to surrender without having to be conquered by the Assyrians. I want to go back for just a minute to amputations. They amputated legs, arms, noses, tongues, ears, and testicles. Were all common things that they. Um, would amputate, they like to gouge out eyes, and they like to burn small children alive and force their parents to watch. And all of this psychological warfare worked. People lived in terror of the Syrians, and as I said, whole cities would just surrender at the mere sight of an approaching Assyrian army. So they actually even had to fight less. In verse 19 of chapter 3, um, the king is now the king of Assyria is now mortally wounded. He cannot be saved. Um, verse eighteen says that the nobles are dead and everyone else has fled. There's no one to help, and there's no one who even wants to. You have inflicted so much pain and torment on the world. No one is going to come to your aid. The book ends with the suffering of Assyria's leader and the celebration by all who hear it. Um, cruelty begets cruelty. This is the principle of reaping and sowing um, that we have throughout Scripture. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The Assyrians lived by cruelty, vengeance, and war and so it should not be surprising that they will also die by cruelty, vengeance, torture, and the sword. And then this horrible little book of Nahum just ends. We get no feeling of resolution other than the celebration of the death of someone. Um, so we have to look a little harder to see the fact that if you're, if you are the people who have been being oppressed, then when the oppressor finally gets some comeuppance, it's a feeling of relief. Like we understand why they celebrate. We just have lived in Christianity long enough to know that we want to hesitate to celebrate even when people get what they have coming. Because if we celebrate too much, we place ourselves in danger of becoming those who celebrate that kind 
of violence and torture. So with that, the difficult little book of Nahum that I told you up front was not for the faint-hearted comes to an end. Thank you.